On this show, we discuss crimes that are often brutal and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode, we will delve into the crimes of Gary Hadnick. He abducted women, tortured and abused them in the most horrific ways. He also managed to get one of them to assist him. This episode is called Gary's House of Horrors. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Before we get started, I want to apologize. I have a head cold. I am talking through my nose. I am very sorry about it. But let me tell you, having a plain Jane normal head cold in the age of Corona is very inconvenient because heaven help you if you sneeze, people look at you like your typhoid Mary. Hopefully it won't be too annoying and the case is interesting enough that you'll stick with me. So let's jump in. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943, in the Cleveland suburb of Eastlake, Ohio. His parents, Michael and Ellen, got divorced not too long after his brother Terry was born. After that, they went to live with their mother and her new husband. Once Gary started school, he and Terry went to live with their father and their stepmother. The boys seemed to spend much of their time arguing with their stepmother or being punished by their father. The father not only abused Gary, but he kind of enjoyed humiliating him. Gary had a bedwetting problem, and as punishment for those incidents, his father would make him hang those dirty sheets outside so the neighbors could see. This kind of treatment did not help the young man develop normally, and he struggled at school where he was a loner and he was mostly isolated from others. He also had a problem with being ridiculed, and part of this was because he had a misshapen head. This was a result of a tree that fell on him. Later, his brother Terry, who also suffered from some mental illnesses, would say he believes the damage to his brother's head from the tree falling explained a lot of what he would do later. I don't know that I buy it, but that's what Terry says. So Gary dropped out of school in the ninth grade. He briefly attended Staunton Military Academy, but he left there before graduation and went back to traditional school. He dropped out again from there. Eventually, he would join the Army. He was a medic for a little over two years, and then he was honorably discharged with a medical disability. The disability was listed as schizoid personality disorder. Side note, I will be doing a half biscuit later this week on that disorder, so tune in for that. So back to Gary. He works briefly as a nurse, but he finds his calling in the form of a religion that he creates, and he uses this as a way to control people. He starts his own church called United Church of Ministers of God in 1971. He opens this church in his house in Philadelphia. Initially, he has five followers, and he has $1,500 to invest. Eventually, he will raise a half a million dollars. Now, let's be clear here. This isn't a church, really. It's a cult. 
And by creating this cult, he learns that he can manipulate people. This skill will come in very handy later when he starts keeping women as prisoners in his basement. So now this story is pretty vast, and I found it really kind of almost hard to organize because I kept getting sidetracked. Because once you start reading about Gary, you go into a rabbit hole. So what I decided to do was just kind of lay out the basics of his crimes, and then we'll kind of go in and dig at it. Gary's known life of crime started in 1976 when he was 33 years old. This first brush with the law was an aggravated assault charge, resulting in him using an unlicensed firearm. What did he do with that firearm? Well, he shot a tenant of a rental property that he had. Fortunately for that tenant, he only grazed the man's face. It doesn't appear that he actually served any time for this incident, which seems kind of bizarre to me. But he gets away with that, and two years later, in 78, he commits the first crime he'll get time for. Gary goes to a mental institution where his girlfriend's mentally disabled sister is institutionalized at the time. Gary checks the girl out for day leave. He then proceeds to take the girl and keep her in a locked room in his basement. While he has her in the basement, he rapes and sodomizes her. She's found there and returned to the hospital. Gary is arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. Now, if you're anything like me, you'd look at this laundry list of offenses and think, this guy is going to spend some serious time in jail. You'd think that. You'd be wrong. He is sentenced to three to seven years in jail. The first sentence is overturned, and he spends three of those years in a mental institution. And then he is released in 1983 with supervision from a state-sanctioned mental health program. Does not seem very fitting to me. Does it to you? So next up for Gary, marriage. Gary gets involved in a matrimonial service, a.k.a. mail-order bride service, and meets Betty, who is from the Philippines. He marries Betty in October of 1985, and this marriage does not go well. Not too long into it, Betty catches him in bed with three women and ends up being forced to participate. He rapes her, beats her, and three months later, she leaves him. This is 1986. But Betty is a bit of a warrior, and she presses charges against him. He's arrested and charged with assault, indecent assault, spousal rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. This sounds good to me. This is a nice, long laundry list of charges. Certainly Gary is going to get some serious time out of this. Nope. Betty fails to appear for the preliminary hearing, and the charges are dismissed. Gary is free to terrorize society. Gary isn't always in jail, though, and when he isn't, he is doing some weird stuff. Former friend of his named John Cassidy, he has some interesting things to say. He knew Gary in the 70s. He said Gary claims the army gave him LSD when he was in Germany. And this is why he had a nervous breakdown. But then Gary decides that, hey, why shouldn't I benefit from this? And that is why he stayed in the army until he was discharged, so he could get disability. John believes the original starting of the cult was as a tax scam, but says towards the end, Gary seemed to kind of believe the crap he was preaching. Gary even called himself Bishop Heidnick. 
Gary would do other weird things like wear a sheepskin lined leather coat in August. Is Gary weird? Yes. Is Gary sexually violent? Yes. But now we come to 1986, and this is when Gary begins his final reign of terror. Fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy ride. Josefina Rivera had the misfortune to run across Gary in November of 1986, the night before Thanksgiving. She was a sex worker. She was approached by a driver in a Cadillac. They discussed a price, and then she got into the car and was driven to 3520 Marshall Street. She went into the house with the man. He introduced himself as Gary Heidnick. They went upstairs where she was handed the agreed-upon $20. They had sex on Gary's waterbed. Afterwards, as she's getting dressed, Gary creeps up behind her and chokes her. When she comes to, she is on the bed, and there's a handcuff on her right wrist. Needless to say, she is not taking this calmly. She's struggling, begging, making noise. He tells her to shut up or he's going to choke her again. She agrees to cooperate if he won't hurt her. He takes her down into the basement, and he uses muffler clamps around her ankles and her legs with chains and attaches it to a pole. He puts crazy glue on the nuts of the muffler clamps so that she won't be able to turn them and try to escape. When she is properly restrained, he tells her to sit up. He then sits down, puts his head in her lap, and promptly goes to sleep. Eventually, Josefina, too, falls asleep. When she wakes up, she's alone. In the center of the room she is in, there is a shallow hole. I'm sure she's wondering if she's going to end up in that hole. Gary comes down and offers her an egg sandwich and some juice. Even though she's very hungry, and it is Thanksgiving, she's afraid that the food might be drugged, and so she refuses to eat it. Gary tosses the food aside and sets about making that hole deeper. While he's digging, he starts telling her that he wants a large family. His plan is to get 10 women and get all of them pregnant, and then he can raise that family. He stops digging this hole long enough to have sex with her, or more aptly, to rape her. Then he goes back upstairs. Josephina manages to loosen one ankle clamp and pries the covers loose from a window. The chain is now at its maximum length, and she cannot get all the way out of the window. So she starts screaming for help, hoping that a passerby or a neighbor might hear. It turns out later a neighbor did hear, but was not unaccustomed to hearing screaming and ignored it. But someone else heard her. Gary heard her. He comes downstairs, drags her out of the window, and beats her with a stick until she stops screaming. He then puts her into the hole. And it's not really deep enough yet, so she doesn't really fit. And he's trying to put the boards over top, and she's not fitting, and she's fighting and struggling. He pulls her out by her hair, beats her some more, puts her back in. Eventually, he manages to get the boards over her. He weighs it down with some sandbags and leaves her there, cramped in the hole, struggling to breathe and terrified. About a day later, she hears him again. She's in that hole, but she hears a young girl's voice from upstairs. The response that that voice gets from Gary is this, Shut up, Sandy. You know that I'm not going to hurt you. Who is Sandy, Josephina wonders. Sandy is going to end up in the basement with Josephina. 
Gary will tell Josephina that Sandy has been promising to have his baby for years, but keeps backing out. Gary is nice enough to bring them water and crackers once in a while. But if he thinks that they're being bad, or if someone is coming over to the house, both Josephina and Sandy would get put into the hole and boarded in. So let's talk about Sandra Lindsay for a minute. She was mentally disabled, and according to her sister Tracy, all Sandy wanted to do was to fit in. And she did, for the most part. Sandy had told her sister about a guy named Gary, who was a bishop at a church. And this bishop liked to take Sandy and her friends to McDonald's. She mentioned that this bishop was going to take Sandy to McDonald's and to some place called Great Adventure. The day after Thanksgiving, Sandy had complained about period cramps, and she went to the store to get some medication. She never comes home from that trip. By Monday morning, her family is worried, and they call the police. The response they get is basically, Sandra is 25, why are you worried? So the police don't end up immediately doing anything. Tracy and her mom are going to just let it rest, so they decide to talk to Sandy's friend, Tony. They know that Tony likes to go to McDonald's, so they basically hang out there waiting to see Tony. Finally, they do, and they ask him, who is this Gary? And eventually, they convince Tony to give them a phone number. They call this number, and they ask where Sandy is. They get a response from this man of, she's not here, and that's it. He hangs up. Still not giving up, they go to the house, and no one is there, or at least no one answers the door. So they go show a neighbor a picture of Sandy, and that lady says, yeah, I've seen her recently. So they take this info to the police, to Detective Julius Armstrong, who is the same detective who basically said not to worry about it, Sandy's 25. He claims that he went and knocked on the door, and he got no answer. So he leaves a note asking anyone known as Gary to contact him. I also read that he had talked to this Tony, who you will hear about at the very end, and Tony gave him the name, but spelled it incorrectly as like Hydock instead of Hydnick. So they may not have even been knocking on the right door. So they've, police basically are done looking, leaving a note on the door. Apparently that's as good as we can do. But Gary isn't going to take any chances. So Josephina says that Gary comes down to the basement with a box of Christmas cards. And he makes Sandy fill one out, telling her mother that she's fine don't worry about me. Gary then puts on some gloves and hands Sandy a $20 bill, and he has her put it into the envelope. Gary then drives to New York to mail the card. Obviously, this is an attempt to convince the police that Sandy is not missing. She's just run off, and hopefully it'll keep the family from coming to his house again. The family isn't buying it, though. Tracy, the sister, says it isn't like Sandy to just send a card and not to call. So the family goes back to Detective Armstrong, asks for a handwriting analyst to look at the card. But Detective Armstrong is not interested. He basically says, in his mind, she is voluntarily missing. Now, Sandy had a sexual relationship with Gary prior to being imprisoned in his basement. They were friends kind of, if you want to call it that. Mind you, she's mentally challenged, so her consent to have sex with him should be taken with a grain of salt. At one point, though, she does actually end up pregnant, but she's scared. She ends up having an abortion. 
When Gary finds out, he flies into a rage. He tells her she's evil. Then he turns around and offers her $1,000 to have a baby for him. She says no to that. That is when she ends up in the basement with Josephina. A few days before Christmas, Josephina and Sandy are in the hole, and here comes Gary. And he's not alone. He's got another girl. Sandy and Josephina are let out of the hole, and they meet Lisa Thomas. Gary had picked Lisa up and took her to a TGI Fridays for food and drinks. After that, he took her to Sears and gave her $50 to spend. Once back at his house, they were drinking beer and watching a movie. When that was over, they went upstairs and had sex. When that was over, he repeated the same maneuvers as he had with Josephina. He strangles her, handcuffs her, and takes her downstairs. Disturbingly, Lisa says he counted the number of links in the chain before clamping them. He wanted to be sure she would be able to open her legs wide enough for sex. Prior to Lisa's arrival, Josephina says that they had sex with Gary every day. Once Lisa arrived, it was every other day. When Christmas arrived, he brought the women a Chinese menu and told them for Christmas they could order whatever they wanted. The day after Christmas, it went back to the usual Pop-Tart for breakfast and rice and hot dogs at night. New Year's Day rolls around and Gary arrives in the basement with Debbie Dudley. She is shackled and put into the hole. Debbie screams throughout the night and receives multiple beatings with a stick that had nails in it. Debbie still would not cooperate. On January 18th, Gary tells Josephina since the 19th is her birthday, he's going to get her a cake. Later that day, the girls in the basement hear some ruckus upstairs and down comes Gary with number five. The women in the basement will know her as Donna, but her real name is Jacqueline Askins. She is lured to the house like the others. She's choked and chained and put with the others. Now Gary decides the girls need to beat each other if one of them is bad. They're all backstabbing each other, vying to be the one in charge, tattling on each other, because if they did, they would get the best treatment. Josephina would often beat the others to earn his favor. At one point, Gary goes to see his friend John Cassidy, to talk about building a fence around his house. He actually had Josephina with him. John would say that he and Gary had to run an errand, but there wasn't room in his truck for Josephina. Gary said, that's fine. She can just wait here at the gas station. And guess what? There's two police cars nearby, and she does nothing. She waits like she's supposed to. John Cassidy will later say she didn't seem like a captive to him. Let's hit the pause button here. I want to talk about Stockholm Syndrome for just a second. According to Healthline.com, this is a psychological response that occurs when hostages or abuse victims bond with their captors or abusers. Over the course of time, the victim develops positive feelings towards their captors. It doesn't happen with every victim, but for those whom it does occur, it's usually considered a coping mechanism, one that the victim employs to handle the trauma of whatever is happening to them. For whatever reason, this is what ends up happening to Josephina. In order to garner time out of the hole and to get rewards like hot dogs and hot chocolate, she becomes a sort of boss over the other women. She also knows that if she doesn't obey Gary, she will lose all of her extra privileges 
and she doesn't want that. Gary, for his part, can use this special treatment of Josephina as a way to set the women against each other. He doesn't just abuse them physically, but mentally as well. If things don't go Gary's way, he would put the captives on what he called on punishment. This usually involved being tortured, starved, or beaten. One of his on punishments was to duct tape their mouths shut and then slowly push screwdrivers into their ears. He'd start with small screwdrivers and work his way up to larger ones. Josephina would watch the tears in their eyes knowing the women couldn't scream because of the duct tape. It isn't just Josephina that has to dole out punishment to the fellow captives. In February, Lisa is told by Gary to beat Sandy. Why? Because Sandy is eating her bread and drinking her water too slowly. Sandy had an eating problem due to her jaw and mouth, and she was physically incapable of eating quickly. This doesn't matter to Gary. Gary is so incensed, he ends up hanging her on a loop by her wrist. So she's standing there with her wrists over her head for three days. Then she just kind of sort of sags, like maybe she's sleeping. In one account, I read that she was, he just cut her down and let her fall to the floor. He leaves and Lisa smacks her on the face to get, you know, a response to see if she's asleep. There's nothing. Gary comes back downstairs. He accuses Sandy of pretending, kind of kicks her around a little, then checks for a pulse. Sandy is not pretending. Sandy is dead. She has suffocated from being in that hanging position and passing out from fatigue. Gary's punishment to keep her and the others in line had backfired. Gary takes her body upstairs. Josephina says that Gary was very upset about Sandy being dead, and so obviously were the women. And me personally, I'm like, why would he be upset? He's a monster. Then it occurs to me that he had lost a plaything. He didn't want her dead. He wanted her punished so she would obey him. That is truly twisted. So after he takes the body upstairs, Josephine is worried that he is going to be so upset that he's going to take it out on the rest of them. I imagine that they're just kind of waiting down there for the boom to be lowered. But instead of him coming back down to punish them, what they hear is what sounds like an electric saw being started upstairs. For the next three to four days, they sit in the basement smelling something horrible. A relative of a person who lived right down the street mentioned that they thought it smelled like a dead body coming from that house. She goes down to ask Gary what the smell is. He claims, I'm just cooking, and maybe you don't like my cooking. Doris, this is the lady, she's the daughter of a neighbor, she decided, nope, I don't think so. So she had been calling the city and complaining about the smell. When that didn't work, she ends up calling the police and tells them it smells like burning flesh coming from that house. An older police officer named Julio Aponte responds to that call. Doris is there as well. There's no answer to his persistent knocks, so he eventually walks around to the back of the house and does some more knocking. Through the back window, he can see a large pot, and it is boiling over. 
He also says the smell was twice as strong from the back of the house. He is just about to call a supervisor when the door suddenly opens and there is Gary. Doris says to Gary, what is that god-awful smell? What is burning? Gary claims, it's a roast. I fell asleep and it burnt. And that appears to be that. I know. Why on earth would anyone believe that? I'm pretty sure a burning person does not smell like a burnt roast. For whatever reason, it ends. It's not looked into. Everyone goes their own way. So now back in the basement, Deborah is still acting up and she is not cooperating. She gets taken upstairs by Gary. Later, when she is brought back down, Josephine starts questioning her. What happened up there? Eventually, Deb will tell her that Sandy's head was in a pot on the stove being cooked and that Sandy's ribs and hip bone were in other pots on the stove. She then says, Sandy's legs and arms are in the freezer. Now, this part right here is disputed, but the women in the basement seem to believe that this is true. He supposedly ground up parts of Sandy and mixed it in with dog food and fed it to the other women. And as far as the dog food goes, now this part's probably true. A few days before this event, Gary had let the women watch TV. And one of them had made the comment during a dog food ad that she was so hungry that the dog food looked good enough to eat. This, for some reason, pissed Gary off. Even though he is starving these women, he had supposedly given them cat or dog food to eat in the past because it was cheap. He, you know, perpetually leaves them hungry. But he's mad that she says she's so hungry the dog food looks good. So he decides, well, that's what they're going to get. I believe he did feed them dog food. I don't know about whether there was ground up person, if Sandy had been ground up. There are sources that say Gary only claimed to have put parts of Sandra in the dog food to help bolster his insanity defense. We'll mention his lawyer later. I think you'll agree. So moving on, on March 18th, Gary left the girls and they started making noise. When he comes back, he finds this unacceptable that they're down there making noise. So he instructs Josephina to hook a hose up to the sink so he can fill the hole with water. He has drilled some air holes in the boards and through this he is putting water in there. While it's being filled, Gary takes an extension cord that is plugged in and now he starts touching the chains, binding the women with this electrical cord. The women are screaming and begging for him to stop. Gary tells them he'll stop when they shut up. But Debbie will not shut up. He hands the live wire to Josephina and tells her to hold it to Debbie's chains. Debbie still doesn't stop. So Gary takes the wire back and holds it on Debbie's chains for several minutes. Eventually, everything goes quiet. Supposedly, once again, Gary didn't mean to kill Debbie. He later drew a diagram for the police of how he had chained her and how the electricity was just there to get her to comply. In fact, I believe his exact words were to get her to do what is right. And he claimed he had chained her to the floor or the dirt so that she was grounded. You know, the electricity wouldn't kill her. 
Well, he is obviously not an expert on electrocution because she did die. And after she was dead, he had Josephina write a letter that said, Gary Heidnick and Josephina Rivera electrocuted Deborah Dudley in the basement of 3520 North Marshall Street. He had Josephina sign it, and so did he. Then he had Donna, a.k.a. Jacqueline, sign as a witness. Gary declared that now he could trust Josephina because he had this letter with her admission of her part in Deborah's death. He then told the women that he was going out to find a place to dump Debbie's body. Sandra's sister, Tracy Lomax, will later say that she believes Gary did mean to kill Debbie on purpose. The reason? Debbie was a fighter and Debbie was strong. Tracy believes that Debbie might have eventually been able to kill Gary. She also believes that given the time, Gary would have eventually killed all of the women. On March 24th, Gary sticks all of the girls in the hole, except for Josephina. He wants to go out looking for another victim, and Josephina is the bait. They run across a girl that Josephina knows, and her name is Agnes. Gary tells Josephina that if she helps him get Agnes, her reward will be that she can contact her family. So they take Agnes back to Gary's house. He has sex with her and throws her into the hole with the others. Immediately, Gary wants another girl. So Josephina's wheels start turning. She tells him that she needs to prove herself to him and that she needs to go get the next girl by herself. Basically, she's trying to convince him that she is loyal to him and to let her prove it by going out and getting him a girl without his help. This is where Gary's ego must swell up and he is so convinced that he has totally brainwashed Josephina that he actually agrees to let her. They go out. She tells him to wait at the gas station while she goes a couple blocks to this girl's house and then she will bring her back to Gary. So despite how you may feel about Josephina at this point, she really does step up. She does walk around the corner, but instead of going to fetch a girl, she runs to her boyfriend's house. He obviously wants to know where she's been. But guess what? When she tries to tell him what happened, he doesn't believe her or is so confused by this story. There's some dogs. They start kicking up a a ruckus because she's so wound up and barking and she's worried it's going to draw attention. So instead, she runs to the corner, to a phone booth, and she calls police. They show up to where she is on this corner and she tells them her story. I don't know if they believe her at first, but she swears to them that the man who's done these things to her and these other women is sitting in a Cadillac at the corner of 6th and Gerard. So police kind of bring her along and they go to check it out. Sure enough, there he is. They approach him and order him out of the car. This is when Josephine says this, and I'm paraphrasing. That's him. He raped me. He killed two other girls and cut one girl up and made us eat her. She also then tells them that the other girls are still there in the house, in a hole, in the cellar. Police get to the house and the and former police lieutenant James Hansen says that this house was intimidating. There were metal doors and bars on the windows. The television was on and the volume was turned way up. When they make their way down to the cellar, they find the half-naked women who see the police and start screaming, we're saved, we're saved. 
the those police went downstairs, James Hansen himself, he went straight to the kitchen and he opens up the freezer. Josephina had told him that there would be body parts there, and sure enough, there were. Then Hansen goes down to the basement where the girls are sitting on a mattress chained to a sewer pipe that's padlocked. They have end up having to go to a nearby fire station to get bolt cutters so that they could set the girls free. They're asking, are there is there anyone else here? They point to the boards on the floor that are covering the hole, and Agnes, the newest one that was brought, is in there. Now he's in custody. There, There's all kinds of info out there on the trial, and it really would take a whole other episode to cover it. But I, I want to point out just a couple things. At his arraignment, Gary claims that the women were already in the house when he moved in. Really? You buy a house and there are women being chained up in the basement. You don't maybe call police. Instead, you say to yourself, hey, I guess I'll keep them. They come with the house. He also claims that Sandra Lindsay was killed by the other women because she was a lesbian. That sounds believable. So Gary, nutbag or not, is always kind of a put-together guy. Always, you know, cleanish, hair done. During his trial, he looks like a crazed lunatic. His lawyer will later admit that he had his client look like that on purpose. You know, he's trying to portray him as insane. And this put-together guy doesn't look insane enough, so let's, you know, mess up his hair and make him look loony. Here is where also the suggestion of cannibalism probably happened. His lawyer says that if you make a victim eat human flesh, that's sadistic. But if you eat it yourself, that's insane. So that was the whole point of making people think that Gary was a cannibal. His lawyer admits that there was no evidence of cannibalism, and it's likely he didn't feed Sandy to the other women either. He did probably make them think they'd eaten her, because that would be truly sadistic, and he is a sadistic F. U-C-K. In reality, the police had examined like the Cuisinarts and other items in the kitchen, and they never found any evidence that he'd processed any of Sandy's body parts to be put into food. But the defense wanted the cannibalism suspicions out there to help with their insanity defense. And here's something else that helps with the he-is-not-insane viewpoint. Remember me mentioning at the beginning the amount of money Gary ended up with for his cult? The $1,500 he started out with was that disability, a disability check from the Army. The whole reason he started his little cult and disguised it as a church was to keep the money from being taxed. He invested money, and that is why he ended up with half a million in the bank and brokerage accounts. His Merrill Lynch financial advisor, Robert Kirkpatrick, said that Gary was an astute investor. Insane people usually aren't super well-known for being good investors. Speaking of his crazy cult, what were the members up to throughout this? So remember, they go to services on Sunday in that house where this is taking place. Believe it or not, it is not clear whether or not most of them knew what was going on. There was one member. He claims he participated. Remember Tony? Tony is mentally disabled. He is the one at the McDonald's that was friends with Sandy. Tony Brown claims that he helped to torture the women, and he refers to himself as Gary's best friend. 
He claims to have been there when Sandy was starved to death and dismembered. He also claims that Gary wrapped the arms and legs and marked them dog meat. It is important to remember, though, that Tony Brown is mentally challenged. So it may or may not be true. Someone with a diminished mental capacity wouldn't have been that hard for Gary to manipulate. Some of them even continued going to his house for services after he was arrested. And for the record, it does appear that the majority of his followers had some kind of mental challenge. Gary preferred people with limited mental capacities because they were easy to control. So Gary goes on trial and the surviving women are in court to testify to their ordeals. Several of them have lasting hearing damage from the screwdriver torture to their ears. His defense tried to prove insanity, but failed. In the end, on June 30th, 1988, after 16 hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, five counts of rape, six counts of kidnapping, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. The jury came back the next day with a unanimous decision in favor of the death sentence. Before his death sentence, he tried to kill himself. He failed. At one point, he says he wanted to be put to death because he's innocent. And basically, if an innocent man got put to death, maybe that would end the death penalty permanently. Whatever, Gary. He was put to death on July 6, 1999 by lethal injection. And ironically, he would be the last person executed in Pennsylvania. Pop culture reference for you here. The method Gary used of keeping women in the pit and starving them was the inspiration or one of the inspirations for Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, as well as Ed Gein's human skin lampshades and other morbid decorations also inspired that character. Creepy times two, I think. Well, that about does it for this episode of Crime Biscuit. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Crime Biscuit, Facebook at Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast, or send me a Gmail at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. I honestly wish before the lethal injection, they'd have kept Gary in a hole, chained to a sewer pipe, and fed him dog food for about 30 years. Maybe given him a good electric shock three, four, 20 times a day for good measure. That would have been a more fair sentence, in my humble opinion. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.